0: Well, this morning we have scheduled the uh, third sermon on our five commitments as a church body, the third sermon being on loving the church, loving the church, which does not sound like a Mother's Day sermon, and it's not. It's not a Mother's Day sermon. But it does connect to Mother's Day. We'll, we'll be able to uh, not artificially make that connection. But first, I just want to remind us what our commitment is and the foundational scriptures. Once again, I hope that by the time these five sermons are done, that we will all have memorized what the five commitments are and grow, have grown in knowledge of what they mean. <clears throat> but I don't think we can overread these commitments in helping us to grow in our knowledge and our understanding. So our commitment to contending for the faith is a reflection of our love for the church of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells in each Christian, but he dwells in a special way, In the body of Christ. In fact, we understand that there is no ordinary hope of salvation apart from ongoing fellowship with the church. This means each of our members is committed to the health of our local church, and our church is committed to the health of the broader church in our nation and around the world. We are in fellowship with and accountable to other churches in our presbytery. We practice church discipline to maintain the purity of Christ's church, and we are committed to advancing Christ's kingdom through the training of pastors and the planting of more faithful churches. A few foundational scriptures that we can cite here are 1 Timothy 3.15, which speaks of the household of God, which is the church church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And First Peter 2, 4 and 5, which says, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then 2 Timothy 2.2 says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So going back to that statement, our commitment to contending for the faith is a reflection of our love for the church of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2 2 connects directly to that. Our commitment to contending for the faith is a reflection of our love for the church of Jesus Christ. Then I'm going to reread that 2 Timothy 2 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So it's for the benefit of others that our private conviction becomes public contending. You don't bother arguing for truth publicly unless you care for others. If all that mattered was that you had the truth, you could avoid a lot of hassle, struggle, trial, just by being quiet. I've got the truth. That's all that matters. But because we care for others, therefore, our private conviction means teaching others, means that We want others to be able to grow in knowledge of what it means to pass on these truths, to pass on these words, and what those faithful, true words are. Why? Because we care about others, the next generation, and the generation after that, and that, and the next. So what I want us to see is the relationship first between This loving the church and the previous sermon on fighting for the truth. Fighting for the truth really comes about because of our love for the church and our desire for her to be healthy and to grow and to bear fruit for Christ And so the next statement says the Holy Spirit dwells in each Christian, but he dwells in a special way in the body of Christ. So even though we have personal conviction, individually we make mistakes all the time in those convictions, right? Everyone's got ideas that are wrong, that we're convicted, that we're convinced are right, and that we're convicted about, all right? Everyone has these personal convictions, but we err. And yes, God has promised to reveal His truth to us, but He has never promised that any individual person or individual church will be the pillar in support of the truth. You are not the pillar in support of the truth individually. We, as a body, even though there's a lot of us here, are not the pillar and support of the truth. We are part of the church, universal, that is the pillar and support of the truth. We're part of it as individuals and then as a body. And so this is what we mean when when we say he dwells in a special way in the body of Christ. Yes, we have been given the gift, the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit that dwells in each of us individually but we also have the knowledge that we aren't alone, but that we are together His body. Not individually His body, but together His body. Living stones, being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. All together. So, with that introduction to recognizing the the bigger picture that loving the church doesn't just mean loving myself, right? Loving the church doesn't just mean loving myself. It doesn't just mean loving my family. It doesn't just mean loving this body of believers. But loving the church means recognizing the big picture of the fact that God has always had a people for himself, that he is building and saving. Building up into a glorious holy temple filled with a royal priesthood. What a, what a grand picture. But it's not, it's not the picture just for us here, right? It's not something that's going to be accomplished right this minute, It's not something that's going to be accomplished through the building of a glorious physical building. It's the glorious church of Jesus Christ, which is made up of all believers throughout all time. All time. Not just now, not just in the future, but all those believers into the past, even back into the Old Testament, the people who were set apart by God for himself, believed in the Savior that God would send. They were saved the same way that we are saved, by the blood of Jesus Christ, not by the blood of bulls. Not by the blood of any earthly lamb, but by the blood of that perfect lamb of God. And so we are all one. We are all one. And that's part of why it's, Delightful for us to recognize that by reciting some of these old creeds. They're certainly not as old as the church. But they go back a long way and they tie us into that, that glorious grand history, that building. And you go back and you look at when these creeds and confessions were written and you see what was going on, and you see the attacks that were happening at that time, and you see that God protected his truth through his church, the pillar in support of the truth. I want you to see that as a glorious thing. You can see the, you can see the battles. You can see the fights that were happening. You can see what was at risk, what was at stake, what it would have meant if pure and true and holy doctrine had been lost in that area. If the Trinitarian doctrine had not been fought over, what would the church be today? There would be no church. And so looking back, I want you to grow in love for the church as a whole. I want you to grow in love for the universal church, we call it. Those Christians down through time, all of history, both now and in the past and in the future. And see the glorious thing that God is doing by building his church and through his church. So starting with that universal church, we can say, She is our mother. And that's as close as we're getting to Mother's Day in this sermon. The church, she is our mother. That's why we say in that commitment that there is no ordinary hope of salvation apart from ongoing fellowship with the church. That's partly quoting an old church father what father who wrote that that's not exactly a quote but does anybody remember who we're quoting cyprian cyprian i wasn't looking for any of you kids to answer that question was i did you have you ever read any cyprian now even judah hasn't read any cyprian The church is our mother. Now, how can I say the church is our mother? Well, it's simple, really. Unless the church remained, unless the church had persevered, unless the church continued to do her work, there wouldn't be anybody to preach the good news, and nobody would hear the good news, and nobody would repent and believe and you and I would not be here gathered in the name of Jesus Christ unless the church had been doing her work so look at the past look at the look at the many people who have gone before you maybe this maybe you are a first generation christian it's not your parents that are responsible for your salvation. Maybe you are a 23rd generation Christian. It's still not your parents. They have to look to their parents and their parents and their parents and you just go back and and you see, oh, we needed the church to be proclaiming the good news day after day. Year after year, this truth had to be passed down. And so, we desire to pass it down. You get to the end of our statement, you see our commitment to training pastors and planting more faithful churches, to passing on these things, as we read in 2 Timothy, to other faithful men. And you realize, yeah, this is what's been going on, and this is what we want to see continue. It's a glorious thing to be part of the universal church. It was only because of her faithfulness that we were birthed as Christians. And so she is our mother. She is our mother. And so we love her for this. Aren't you thankful for those previous generations and their work? Aren't you grateful for all that they sacrificed for all the fights that they engaged in, for all of the personal purity and holiness that they worked towards. All of these things, we look back and we say, yeah. If we have any self-awareness, if we have any gratitude in our hearts, we say, yeah, I love her. I'm thankful for her. I love the church. Just like if you have any gratitude in your heart, you look at your mom and all the things that she's done for you, and you think, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for her. I'm thankful for all that she has done. <clears throat> it's also easy to see how we would call the church our mother when we read that she is the bride of Christ, That kind of begins to make sense. You see the fruit, right, of the church. If he is the bridegroom, and he's loved her so completely that he died for her, we must also love her because we are to love what he loves. We are to love what he loves. But it's very difficult to understand what it means to love the universal church. If, if we could just have that as our duty, it would be practically impossible, but it would also be very easy for us to never feel any qualms because the universal church is all people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ throughout all time. It's very ethereal, philosophical, theoretical. And so because it can be hard for us to understand what it means to love the universal church, I want us to look at an example, an amazing example, of somebody loving the church and see what we can learn about how to love the church ourselves. I'm going to read to you Exodus 32, verses 7 through Fourteen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. This happens <clears throat> while Moses is on the mountain, meeting with the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people, whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it. And said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power, And with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens. And all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants. And they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Okay, were you kids listening? Who loved the church in that passage? Who loved the church? God loved the church? Got a safe answer there. It's true, God has always loved his church. Yeah, Zeal. Moses loved the church. Now, Zeal, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Moses loved the church. But first we have to understand how I can say Moses loved the church. Didn't the church start in the New Testament? No, the, the church, the ecclesia, which is the gathering, the body of God's people, has always existed. Here they were gathered. Here they were. They were gathered together in one place. And so when Moses loved the people of Israel, he was loving the people that the Lord God had set apart and called for himself, called by his name, the people of God, which is to say, the church, we who are known as the people of God, his people, set apart, called by his name, we are the same as them. We are the church. They were the church. And so Moses loved the church, he loved the church so well in this passage. And I want us to learn from his example. And the first thing I want us to see is that Moses loved the church in spite of her sin against God. In spite of her sin against God. What were they doing while he was interceding? While he was praying to God that God would not destroy them, what were they doing? Did you kids notice? What were they doing? Yeah, they were worshiping a golden calf. It's awful. It's horrific. While God is meeting with Moses on the mountain, they're worshiping an idol. It's blatant idolatry. It's horrible. What did they deserve? They deserved to be wiped out. This is why the Lord was giving the land of Canaan to the Israelites because of the wickedness of the nations that lived there, and their idolatry was central to their wickedness. And yet, Moses loved the church in spite of her sin against God. Now, today, we can look around at the church and we see crazy sin in the church. Look at the people who have gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. Think about the groups that call themselves churches just in this city. And what wicked things they teach and what idolatry they encourage. What does the church today in the United States and really around the world, I mean, if you, if you think it's bad here, go to Africa. Go to South America. It's different problems, sort of. But the church has real real sins today. The preaching of the health and wealth gospel has overwhelmed the third world. Why? Because people worship money. People worship pleasure and ease and health and the things of this world. And so we look around we see the sin. We see the idolatry of the church today. And we think, oh, it's awful. How could anybody love this church? Moses loved the church. All of the rest of them. The church wasn't spread over the whole world at that time. The church was all gathered right there at the foot of the mountain. And the priest... Aaron his brother from him down everybody was worshiping a calf Moses was the only one who wasn't there aside from Joshua Joshua was up halfway up the mountain or something right everybody else the whole church is down there and what are they doing they're worshiping a calf it's easy for us to begin to despise the church. When we look and we see false teaching, when we see the fights that happen in individual churches, between churches, between people, you see the false teaching, you see the idolatry, you see the sin, and you look and you look and you look and you just see sin everywhere. And you think, eh, the church? Who needs it? Really? Who needs it? I can just go home and have myself a little home church. Read my Bible. The Bible's good. People are bad. You're not wrong. You know what the problem with your plan is, though? That's so I say when people talk about wanting to move to another country that's got fewer problems than the United States. The problem is always, wherever you go, there you are. People are sinful, aren't they? And you are no exception. So you go alone in your room and begin to worship the Lord by yourself. And the only thing that's changed isn't that there's no more sinners. The only thing that's changed is he has not promised to be where one is gathered in his name. And so in spite of the sin, the idolatry, the false teaching, the wickedness, we do not begin to despise and hate the church. We must still love her the way that Moses did, though they were all given over to sin against the Lord. He still loved them. He still loved them. Jesus, of course, is a great example of this as well. When he looked around at the people and he saw their sins, he saw their wicked teachers, bad, false teaching, And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, no surprise, still loved his bride. Right? He was faithful. Moses loved the church in spite of their sin against God. And not just in spite of their sin against God, but in spite of their sin against himself. Himself. What were the people like whom Moses was leading? These were grumblers. Oh, how irritating to try to lead people who grumble. Okay, kids. We're going to do our chores now, all right? Uh, do we have to? It's so easy to be cheerful as a mother and a father, right? When, when, you're, when your kids are grumbling that they have to do work. It's, it's so easy to just keep loving them, isn't it? No, it's not. As a matter of fact, it's very easy for us to begin to grumble at the work that God has given us to do. Uh I can't believe I have to try to teach them more, not to grumble. These were not just grumblers that Moses was leading, but they tried to rebel against his leadership, under God, every chance they got. They were always trying to throw him under the bus. Everything that they saw as bad, they blamed Moses for. And so these people sinned against Moses over and over and over. It's a lot easier to love theoretical people you've never met than people who sin against you and sin against you and sin against you again and again and again, right? But Moses didn't love theoretical people. He loved the very people who were sinning against himself. And oh, what love he demonstrated, didn't he? It was at a cost to himself as well. He had no interest in what he could become if it was at the cost of the people of God. He had no interest in what he could become if it was, if it was at the expense of the church of Jesus Christ. He was selfless. Think of what the Lord had said to him. Let me alone so that I might destroy them and make something great of you. I will make you a great nation. And Moses says, no. No, I don't want that. That is very selfless, isn't it? Very selfless. Are you willing to make sacrifices yourself for the benefit of the church of Jesus Christ? Give up blessings that you could have so that the church will have blessings instead. You must love the church to do that, right? Or else you are doing it because you think that you'll build a name for yourself, right? By sacrificing. Remember Barnabas sacrificed by selling a property and then giving the money to the church. And Ananias and Sapphira were like, oh man, people really like Barnabas for that. Let's do that. And so they sacrificed by selling a property and giving the money to the church, right? Except they only gave half of the money. So what? It's still a sacrifice. Money they could have had, they gave to the church. But was it because of their love for the church? No, it was not. It was because they loved their own glory. They wanted to make a name for themselves by their sacrifice on behalf of the church. Did they get glory from it? No. Their names are recorded for us as a warning that we not be like them. Moses sacrificed for the sake of the people of God, not so that he could have a great name, and yet here we are reading about the great name that Moses has. It's weird. The first shall become last, and the last shall become first. So Moses loved the church in spite of her sin against God, in spite of her sin against himself, and at a cost to himself. Why? Because he was concerned for the glory of God, not for the glory of his own name. He loved the church because he was concerned that God's name received the glory that God deserves. We're tempted to think about what it will mean for how people view us rather than how they will view God. But you look in this passage and you see that Moses speaks to the Lord and he says, Why should, verse 12, why should the Egyptians speak saying, with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? What is Moses saying to the Lord? He's saying, God, the Egyptians won't glorify your name from this and you just saved the people from the land of Egypt. Of all the people who should now be glorifying your name, who should see your glory and your majesty, who should see the perpetual love that you have for your people, it should be the Egyptians right now. Moses was concerned that God's name would be glorified. And so when we think of the question what is man's chief end what is what is man's what is your primary purpose and we remember the catechism saying it's to glorify god and enjoy him forever right Or as Piper likes to say, it's to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Moses here loves the church because he is seeking to glorify God. He is seeking that God's name would be magnified, that God's name would be raised up. And and if you think about it, you think about the church existing today, and you think, The world despises God. The world has no patience for his truth, no belief in his majesty, in his power, in his creation that he has made. The world has no awe for the power of God. No no jaws dropped at what he has done for his people. Right? Right? How in the world could we change that? How could that be changed? The only way that changes is if the world sees what God has done for his people. And so our concern for the church flows out of our concern for God's name to be magnified. We glorify, if we truly desire that he will be glorified, we will think, how can the name of God be glorified in this place, in this time, in this context? Oh, that's pretty easy. If the world saw the people of God and what God has done for them, they would glorify God's name, wouldn't they? And of course, you can probably think of Bible verses that talk this way. The most, the, 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 the most important one that I can think of, of course, is speaking of our love for one another and what impact that will have on the world. The way the song puts it is, they will know we are Christians by our love, right? They will know we are Christians by our love. That's what we see in Moses here. We see Moses demonstrating love for the people of God because he is of God. He is one of the people of God. And so therefore he cares. He loves the people of God. Why else besides his concern for the glory of God does he love the church. It's because he was confident in the covenant promises of God. He knew history. He knew what God had said. And so, when God says, leave me alone that I, may, that I can destroy them, Moses doesn't leave him alone in order to let him destroy. He knows what God has said. What has God said? He reminds him of it. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself. And said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens. And all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. What a beautiful thing. Moses was confident that God's word was true, and therefore... He loved the church in spite of her sin, in spite of her many flaws, in spite of the fact that, yes, he also got impatient with her because he knew that God had covenanted with his people, sworn by himself. None of us swear by ourselves. Right, I swear to you on me. God does that. May the Lord strike me dead if I don't. Right? We swear by God, and God swears by God. And God said that he would establish his people in the land, and so Moses says, God, no, wait. You remember what you said. You said you would bring them into this land and that you would give it to them. You said it by yourself. You said it to Abraham. Abraham to Isaac, to Israel. And so he stands between God and the people with love for the people in confidence in the covenant promises of God. So we see how Moses has loved the church We see why. What exactly did he do? He prayed for her. He prayed for her. That's what it means to say he entreated the Lord. He was praying. How quick we are to think that all our work, is what accomplishes everything. Moses had done a lot, you know. The sea parts, the sea comes back, the water is drinkable, there's water, there's quail, there's, you know, all these things that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel had accomplished through Moses. And they were all important for the protection, for the preservation of the people, right? God used them to preserve his people alive through the hands of the Egyptians, through the desert and the wilderness, through many dangers, toils, and snares, right? Right? what was the most important thing that Moses did for the preservation of God's people? It was praying for them. By far, the most important thing that Moses did was pray that God would not destroy them. And so, in reality, our prayers are more powerful than our works. Our prayers are more powerful than our works. How else did Moses love the church? He loved it by seeking to see it expand. Not to contract. He could have contracted all the way to him and his family, right? A lot fewer people to lead. As far as we know, a lot easier to lead. But Moses desired to see the church expand. A growing church and planting churches is actually part of loving the church. It's actually part of loving the church to desire these things. It's easy to see a small, comfortable church that serves us, meets all our needs, as desirable. Right? It's without many challenges, without much work, without much cost, without much need to love, without fruit. No, we desire that the church of Jesus Christ would be bearing fruit for his kingdom. The point of having a church is not so that we can be comfortable. We desire, as we love the church, to see it expand. And then last but not least, Moses loved the church by loving the particular group of God's people that was in front of him. As I said earlier, there was no theoretical people. That Moses, it, was a, it was a real people that Moses was loving. Insofar as there were theoretical people, they were future. They were future people, right? He did love the future people by desiring that the church would grow, that the church would bear fruit. He looks to the future. He preaches sermons to the present. He says to the people, when you go into the land, remember your God. When you have ease and peace and plenty and prosperity and the land is flowing with milk and honey, you'll be tempted to forget your God. Don't forget your God. None of those people None of those people were rich, wealthy, had it made yet. They were all still in the wilderness, right? So he does, he looks to the future, he looks to a theoretical people, but only so that he can preach more effectively and helpfully to the present. He loves the future church in this by loving The present church. By loving the present church. He loved by looking at the people who were actually in front of him and by taking responsibility for them. He loved by taking responsibility for others who he could actually take responsibility for. So this is one example in Scripture, beautiful example. Moses, who dares to intercede for the people of God when they are at their worst, with God himself, and God hears him. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing picture for us to have that as we see the church we grow in love for her like Moses did so if we want to grow in love loving the church we can think of Moses and it will bear good fruit as we begin to imitate him. As we begin to imitate him, we can see many other examples. One great example is when the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth and says that he's jealous for them because he had prepared them to be part of this bride, to to be pure and holy. He desires them to be Faithful. Moses goes down the mountain and certainly desires that the people will be faithful. But start by looking around you and thinking, how can I love these people? These people. To love the church means... Loving these people in my church. And from there, it will naturally become that you love even more broadly. You will begin to see the church universal as you begin to realize the church particular, right here, Christ Church. As you begin to love real sinners here, people who sin against you, you'll begin to realize how great Christ's love is for his bride. And you'll be able to actually love the church universal. It won't ever work the other way around, not really.